be seated. Well, uh, this morning we considered the other half of the proverb we're going to be reading tonight. He who's not with me is against me, and how it is that often a stand must be made for Jesus. But we have the opposite side of that before us this evening, and this is just a, a one-off sermon. I'd like to invite you to turn with me, if you have a Bible, to Mark chapter 9. We'll consider together, starting in verse 33, the context of this proverb. Uh, He who is not against us is on our side, says the Lord Jesus. From Mark 9, starting in verse 33, uh, then he, that is Jesus, came to Capernaum and When he was in the house, he asked them, his disciples, What was it you disputed among yourselves on the road? But they kept silent, for on the road they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. And he sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. And he took a little child and set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Now John answered him, saying, Teacher, we saw someone who does not follow us, casting out demons in your name. And we forbade him, because he does not follow us. But Jesus said, Do not forbid him, for one who works a miracle in my name... Uh, can soon afterward, uh, excuse me, for no one who works a miracle in my name can soon afterward speak evil of me, for he who is not against us is on our side. Amen. Let's pray together again. Our Father, we pray that the uh, light of Christ should fall again upon every heart, that the mind of Christ might be in us, and that we might understand how it is that You have chosen to advance your cause and name in this world. We pray it for Christ's sake. Amen. At the very heart of Christianity, we find something utterly unique, utterly wonderful. God has become man. He has become our righteousness. His love has found us in all of our need. His grace has covered our sin. And his son has come to serve us, to live for us and die for us, the most Wonderful and beautiful thing there could be. But what does it mean for us to follow Christ, practically speaking? Surely to follow a king means, what, privilege, greatness, power, prerogative, being served, living a life? That's what greatness entails in the world, and certainly the kings of this earth would agree. But Jesus says no. He is a different sort of king indeed. To follow him means the opposite, humility, meekness, weakness, submission, serving, giving up our life that we might find it, taking up our cross and following him. What does greatness mean? It's not a question that we often ask out loud, but it is a good question. Uh, We see in our Lord that it is not in ruling, but in serving, not in getting, but in giving, not in making ourselves big, but in making ourselves small in the eyes of man. And so if anyone desires to be first, he said, he shall be last and servant of all. Humility is 
not really even thinking little of ourselves, as C.S. Lewis pointed out. It's really not thinking of ourselves at all. It's thinking of others. And this is what Jesus means in context when he describes receiving a little child. He, he doesn't mean, hey, just come here, little child, and I've received Jesus now. He, he means uh, uh, caring for, serving the least. As we do this, uh, we make ourselves, as it were, great in the kingdom. And I've told you before about St. Bede's Episcopal Church in Santa Fe, New Mexico, where there's a hand-lettered door over their sanctuary that says, Servant's Entrance. It's the only door in or out. Uh, that's the truth of the matter. And this is a life that is worthy of the gospel. This is what the followers of the king should expect. They say that imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. And so it is in the great passage that we read at the beginning of our service from Philippians chapter 2. Paul commends to us the mind of Christ, who did not say me first, who didn't even seek what was fair, but one who humbled himself served others considering their needs and considering others better than himself, taking the form of a bondservant. Well, we have definitely not arrived until we have such a mind in us that to say that you are more important than me because I love you and for Christ's sake I wish to serve you. So Christian humility then is not sitting around having a low opinion of ourselves, not like Mr. Uriah Heep, a very humble man indeed, as some of you will know, but uh, it is found in being a servant to more and more people, living for them, uh, thinking of them, and this is the general context before us when we find the disciples asking a related question about what they should do about this random person they run into who doesn't follow us, and who's casting out demons in your name. Uh, something that seems very far from our experience, but because we're at a distance, I think this passage might help us gain some perspective about how God's work progresses in the world and what our attitude should be toward others. Um, this morning I pointed out that there are many times when not taking a stand for God is taking a stand against Him, but... As I was thinking of something to preach this evening, I was considering how we might take the opposite side of this and consider the humility our Lord teaches with this proverb, he who is not against us is on our side. Let's consider what's going on with this interaction with the disciples, and then we'll make some application to ourselves. Here in verse 38... My New King James Version says we came across this person who's casting out demons, and we forbade him. Without getting into all the details of the language, there's actually a, there's this shift in the tense of the verb that almost certainly indicates that they tried but were not successful. And so many of you I know have the ESV or some of you have the NAS that's very similar. We tried to stop him because he was not following us. That is to say, we came upon this guy, he was casting out demons in the name of Jesus, we tried to stop him, and he went right on. These disciples said that they were very concerned. You see, they're concerned, no, no doubt, for the Lord's name and reputation. I mean, who is this random man whom we'd never seen? He, he's going around ministering in Jesus' name? 
those 12 disciples with Jesus, they have been called and chosen and properly ordained and commissioned with a laying on of hands with great solemnity to minister by the Lord in his name. They were, they were his authorized representatives in the world. And the Lord had done this with great formality and public solemnity. He had spent a whole night in prayer. He set them apart. He charged them himself. He taught them what to say and what to do. And he sent them out to minister with Christ's power and authority. They had spent countless hours being taught by Jesus. They had received a thorough education. And Jesus had invested himself in these men and they in him. What is this man? How much training has this strange man received? They'd never seen him before. These disciples had given up everything to follow the Lord. What had this man shown in his way of commitment? Had he even bothered to spend any time with Jesus? Was this man a representative of the Lord? Would he be teaching the wrong things? Almost certainly. These men probably had the Lord's honor and cause in their minds when they tried to stop this random man. But if we read a little more carefully, we might notice that their motives were perhaps not pure. What had they just been talking about? Well, we read it at the beginning of our passage. On the road, they had been disputing among themselves who would be the greatest. Uh, Mark is especially keen, by the way, of uh, sandwiching certain things together. One of these days, I'll preach a sermon series on Mark, and I'll seek to show you not passage by passage, but pushing the passages together to show you the connections. These men are, in context, proud and jealous of each other, uh, eager to be the greatest and to be ahead of others. And uh, so Jesus had given them this brief lesson in humble service. I think we can also look up the page slightly and see why they were jealous because this man had been more effective than them. We saw this man casting out demons. But uh, if you just look up a few more verses from uh, where we started to verse 28, we see the context then just, just above. And when Jesus had come into the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? That is a demon. There's this, there was this boy, uh, not to rehearse the whole story, but uh, the, the man had brought the boy to the disciples. The disciples couldn't cast the demon out. And, and, and they wanted to know why uh, they had been so ineffective. Um, and Jesus explained it. But here they are just a few verses later, and they come across this man who is casting out demons in Jesus' name. He is effective doing what they are supposed to be doing, but better than them. Well, this is the context, as I say, in which we get this interaction and the proverb that follows. It's a common defense mechanism for us that when we fail or when we feel insecure, we tend to criticize people that are more successful than we are. You might look around at other churches who are far more successful at their evangelistic work and think, oh, surely they're a bunch of compromisers or something, right? Their ministry must bear little resemblance to the Lord. They, they are not getting sound biblical teaching. It's surely superficial. Uh, no wonder it's so successful and so forth. That might make me feel better, uh, and it explains away my failure and their success. But am I, am I motivated for the Lord's zeal? Certainly not. Um, these disciples, no doubt, were challenged when they also saw this man doing what they were called to do, but doing it successfully. These disciples 
had left all and entered Christ's ministry the right way. This man, who knows where he came from, sending himself. Does it matter? Why would they go about ministry in this way? What's the point of the disciples going through all this that they had done? Perhaps a minister today might say, well, what's the point of seminary and learning Hebrew and Greek and sacrificing years and resources to go through the trials of licensure and ordination and assessment and internships and on and on? Uh, When D.L. Moody was a shoe salesman who had none of that, He just went out one day and started preaching, and his ministry was blessed 10,000 times more than the average minister. We might wonder, well, what's the point? In the middle of the 18th century, George Whitfield was coming to Scotland to preach, and one of the forefathers in the Associate Presbytery, one of our church's fathers, if you like, in Scotland, they had recently seceded from the Kirk over some critical issues, including the free offer of the gospel, the uh, control of the state, especially the excommunication of several faithful ministers. They had left, and those who remained in the church agreed with the state to compromise on some very important issues. Well, not to get into the details of that, but Ebenezer Erskine wrote to George Whitfield, May 16, 1741, to say, Brother, we are so glad that you're coming, and when you come, we would like to ask you if you could limit your ministry to our congregations. We have just stood up for Christ and his word in these very difficult days. We've been persecuted. We've lost our churches. Some of the most eminent gospel ministers and writers have been cast out of the Church of Scotland. A full third of the Church of Scotland has now left in protest to join us. This is not a permanent separation But at the moment, it's hard to see how faithful ministers could could even continue in the Kirk, the Church of Scotland. If you'd like to come and preach for them, it'll validate what they've done, and all of Scotland will take notice. Whitfield thanked them for their interest, but would not comply with Erskine's request. He came and preached everywhere, even the large, unfaithful churches with, frankly, unbelieving ministers who had persecuted the Erskines. Was Whitfield right or was he wrong? Well, I I wouldn't accept the invitation to preach at a liberal church today, I suppose, no matter how large it was. I think that he made the wrong decision, but I have to tell you what happened. God brought a tremendous revival and blessing on Whitfield's ministry. I mean, thousands and thousands of people were converted. uh, Scotland saw a tremendous advance of the gospel. Well, does that mean that Whitfield was right? Did he do the right things in the right way? No. Does it mean it doesn't matter what we do? No, it doesn't mean that. But this does illustrate something that's strange and often uncomfortable, that God so often throughout history pours out his power and blessing upon people who don't follow us, who don't do it the right way, who are doing it their own way, even doing it the wrong way. And it's perplexing, isn't it? And we must understand that, as Paul said, insofar as Christ is preached, we must rejoice that God does strike a straight blow with a crooked stick. 
here's this man driving out demons. Well, why couldn't we drive him out? Why are you blessing him, Lord? We've left all to follow you. We've worked so hard. He's done none of that. We're seeking our own greatness. And the Lord might ask, well, would you like to trade places with this man? Or am I not free to bless my servants in different ways as I see fit? You have all this preparation and ministry for which I've given you here. And him I've given a mighty power to deliver from demons. But he is a man on our side. Jesus tells these disciples that they have come to the wrong conclusion. Do not forbid him. For no one who works a miracle in my name can soon afterwards speak evil of me. He who is not against us is on our side. This, this will free us uh, from a censorious and sectarian spirit. It doesn't mean we need to approve everything and everyone and the way that things are going forward, but it reminds us that, that Christ is doing things in a way that will best glorify him. It doesn't mean we need to approve of everything that every Christian does in the name of Christ. It doesn't mean that um, people should be able to do it without criticism. There are far too many verses to the contrary. Paul writes letter after letter to straighten out these, these twisted churches and correct their errors and, and redirect their leadership. We certainly don't have to approve what everyone does as long as they're sincere. But the passage challenges us that there are many people who don't do things the right way. They, they don't follow with us. They don't submit themselves to the authority of the broader church. Maybe they've gone off on their own. Maybe they're ill-trained and confused and they're teaching people who knows what. But insofar as Christ is preached, we can rejoice and they are on our side. They don't need to stop at least what they're doing right. And hopefully they're doing a good deal of that. Or as Thomas Watson put it, God can draw a straight line with a crooked stick, and we should be very glad that they are with us. We may need to instruct them more fully, as they did to Apollos, right? We may need to correct them, as Paul did to the churches, be able to call attention to the things that are going wrong, as John did to Demetrius. Paul said elsewhere about people who wouldn't submit to him that they were preaching Christ out of rivalry. There are these people that are stirring up trouble for Paul in prison, and they're, they're seeking to take his disciples and to say bad things about Paul. Paul comments then, what does it matter? The only important thing is that every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and in this I rejoice. This is a great man, and he's not threatened. Are you pleased that God has so many different people in churches in the world preaching the Lord Jesus? In whatever way, for whatever reason, insofar as Christ is preached, do you rejoice? Our, our church has a long history, a long confession of faith, and directory of public worship, and larger and shorter catechisms, and more than I could say. We have a very deep concern for God's word and living up to what we have already attained, as the apostles put it. We maintain the, the church fathers and the historic doctrine and practice and confession of the church in all ages but all reformed according to God's word. And through a great many uh, difficulties and trials, we have come to clear biblical commitments about what we believe and all that's good. And we must be concerned about those things. I'm glad that we are. 
But this can put us in a particular danger of having a proud, censorious, critical, or even envious mindset of others who, frankly, are doing far, more, far better work and far more, uh, far more uh, fruitful work than we are. The disciples should not conclude as a result of this rebuke, well, it doesn't matter whether I follow the Lord or not, it doesn't matter whether I'm trained or not. Well, if, if that man that you met doesn't follow us, well, it's his loss in a sense. If he's teaching the wrong thing, though there's a place for brotherly correction, we realize he can't turn around and speak evil of the Lord after he's done a great miracle in his name. At the end of the day, so far as Christ has preached more and more, we should rejoice more and more. And to his own master, each one will stand or fall. Another ministry is making many more disciples than we are. You say, well, what kind of disciples? It's a fair question. Are they teaching him to observe all that Christ has commanded? Um, okay, well, that's a fair question as long as it's not motivated out of jealousy, out of pride, out of a sectarian spirit, out of an idea that uh, we and we alone are on the Lord's side. I mentioned that shoe salesman, Dwight Moody. You know, he didn't attend school past the fifth grade. He couldn't spell. His grammar was atrocious. His manners were crude. He never was ordained as a minister. But few people in history have converted as many people as D.L. Moody. He came to Boston as a teenager, and his uncle took him on as a shoe salesman on the condition that he attend Mount Vernon Congregational Church. Now, Moody had been raised in a Unitarian church that uh, denied Christ's divinity and all sorts of things, said we didn't need a savior from our sins. But all of a sudden, Moody did hear about those things, and he tried to read the Bible, though he didn't understand it. Finally, a Sunday school teacher, a man named Edward Kimball, who uh, later said, by the way, he'd never seen anyone whose mind is as spiritually dark as Moody's. Um, Kimball went to Moody's shoe store April 21st, 21st, 1855, and he asked Moody to commit his life to Christ. And Moody listened closely to him, and he became a Christian that day and immediately began sharing his faith with others, including his family. And estimates vary, but Moody, Moody is generally regarded as having personally led one million people to profess faith in Christ before television, before amplification, um, that, I mean, the, the churches after he left the town were full for months and years. Uh, God used this shoe salesman as the leading evangelist of a generation. And what are we to make of this? Was it good that this man wasn't trained or examined or ordained with the laying on of hands? Did he have the apostolic succession of those things? Did he submit himself to the church's oversight? Did he just send himself into ministry? Frankly, he didn't do anything the right way. He, 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 though he was what we would call today an evangelical, he, he taught a number of errors out of ignorance, I hope, rather than malice, but his theology was poor. Yet even Moody's critics confessed that the Lord used him mightily and, and blessed him far more than those who knew so much more of the truth and were doing things in the right way. Um, at the same time, this, he went to Scotland also. The Scottish Free Church was deeply divided on whether to support Moody's work in Scotland. Uh, the, the, the Free Church had a deep concern for God's Word, and 
what should we do with this Moody character? He's teaching error, Kennedy said. Well, we're not endorsing his teaching of error, but his teaching of Jesus, said Bonner. Mm, it's just emotionalism, said Kennedy. It is some emotionalism, you're right. But there are so many true conversions, said Bonner. Back and forth, they debated it in the church. The leading ministers making excellent points. Is this man on our side or is he not on our side? Can, can we... Can we support, can we appreciate, can we recommend this ministry, this man who is in so many ways so weak and sinful, and yet is being used so signally by a great God? I realize it's a mixed bag. The point is, you look through the history of the church and all the great works of God and the people that are greatly blessed, it is not the greatness of the servants, typically. Oh, occasionally there's a, there's a Whitfield and, a, and an Edwards and so forth. So often, it's people that don't follow us. It's people that aren't doing anything right. Jesus says, they are on our side. We are not to oppose them. Positively, it also means that there's a place for you and me and all of God's servants because Though we like to be proud and look down on others for not doing it the right way, the truth is we have a great many manifest weaknesses ourselves and sins and neglect, and rightly do we mourn over them, and we are not content with the way things are with us. But God does not call perfect people, and he does not use perfect people. In fact, he often chooses his servants in such a way that his own wisdom, power, and grace may be on display and, you know, again, we look, at the, we look at these apostles, you look at these fishermen, and we say, of all the people of the earth, could you not have picked some better people than these? Well, this is the secret of Christianity, you see. It's not in them. It's in the Lord and in his power. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. And the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And this is a great challenge. The disciples are staggered. Let us be zealous for Christ's name and not our own. Let us be thankful for what we have received and that we have been allowed to be unprofitable servants of the King of Kings, called, chosen, commissioned, and blessed, and made to be a blessing to the world insofar as we have. For all of their thick heads and thin skins, these disciples, in fact, became the most important influential men in the history of the world. And their accomplishment is evident everywhere as we look around in the world. They weren't doing things right back then, and even after Jesus rose from the dead, it was not a wholesale redemption. They still made their own errors. Paul opposing Peter before his face, for instance, at Antioch. But these were the men whom the Lord chose to take his name throughout all nations. It was they who established the church in the visible presence of the kingdom of God in the world. And you don't have to be a spiritual giant to accomplish great things in the service of Christ. In fact, spiritual midgets, midgets, they were, and we are in many ways, 
but also fully capable of great deeds by Christ's power. And Christian history, I say, is chock full of the greatest things being accomplished by the most uh, humble and sometimes sinful, weak messengers. It was unlettered, uneducated, working men that brought the gospel forth into the Roman world. It was an unlettered, uneducated, working man that brought Charles Spurgeon to faith in Christ one snowy Sunday morning, the same Spurgeon who in turn brought thousands upon thousands of others to Christ through his ministry. It was a peasant woman who rescued Abraham Kuyper from unbelief and the theological skepticism that had so imbued him and sent him on the course of such great achievement to lead a reformation of the church in Holland and to become prime minister and to do so much for the cause of Christ in that land. The point is, if there's hope for people like that, our weakness is no impediment to fruitful service. This is a kind of backhanded encouragement to demonstrate that both our salvation and our usefulness is all of grace. The Lord may choose to use the wise, the sanctified, obedient, and he could choose to use the proud and weak and fools to accomplish his will in the world. This is a great mystery in the kingdom of God. But here is the proof tonight. People like you and me The great mystery of the kingdom of God and the proof is found everywhere we look that from out of the nations he has called not many wise, not many noble are called. He has chosen the weak to put to shame the wise. He has made it so that our boast and our boast alone is in Christ Jesus who has become from us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption that as it is written, he who boasts Let him boast in the Lord. Let us forsake all of our pride and understand the lessons that the Lord is teaching us here. He alone is the only boast that all of us have. Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, you demonstrate your own love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And we praise the greatness of your redeeming love that... Christ has perished that we might live, that we might enjoy more and more of Christ, even now in the body and with the wonder and glory of the mind of Christ. We pray that you would deliver us from the thoughts of this world and conform us to the image of your Son, that he indeed would be the firstborn among many brethren. We do readily confess that so much of our Uh, judgment on others is thinly veiled uh, pride and a a spirit that seeks to put ourselves forward. We pray that the melting love of Christ, who has made himself slave of all, would be known and felt in every heart that we, with a true and humble spirit, may seek in Jesus to attain to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, 
causes the growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love, as it is written.